Catechism and listen to God's Word as the Church has summarized it and confesses it in Lord's Day 35. Lord's Day 35 you'll find on page 516 in your Book of Praise. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we, may we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity? No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. So far. The sermon this afternoon was prepared by Reverend D. Poppy. Minister of the Coldale Canadian Reformed Church. After the reading of this afternoon's sermon, we will respond with the singing of hymn 4, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, In the second commandment, God teaches us how we are to worship him. When he tells us not to make an idol in the form of anything, our confession explains this by saying that we are not to make an image of God, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. God wants to be worshipped in the manner he prescribed. He really does not want his people to make some gold or silver image of him, nor to worship him in any of their own ways, because that doesn't do justice to him. It is an offense to his holiness. And then, the way our forefathers worked this out in the time of the Reformation is that they pointed out the sin that was present in the Roman Catholic Church against this command. They first outlined that God cannot be visibly portrayed in any way since he is the Lord. And then they applied that truth to the images that the Roman Catholic Church used in trying to teach the people. They used and still use a crucifix and many images in their churches as a means to try to impress on the people the suffering of Jesus Christ and the stories of the Bible. But our confession points out that instead of using images, we should subject ourselves to the living preaching of God's word. God uses his word to teach his people, not these dumb images. But that raises the question, what would motivate the Roman Catholic Church to want to use these images? I don't know, but I imagine the reason for doing so is because they wanted to bring the worship of God close to the people. The reason they have a crucifix hanging at the front of their churches is because they want to make the suffering of Christ real for the people. They want to bring home to the people who the Lord really is and what the Lord has really done. What they want is that the worship of God becomes authentic and a genuine experience, not just a ritual that you go through. The same thing happened to the Israelites time and again in their history. 
When they came out of the promised land and Moses had gone up Mount Sinai to meet with God, then the people made a a golden calf because they wanted something real and tangible that they could worship. You will notice that in Exodus 32, we are told that their intention in making the golden calf is not to worship someone else besides the Lord. They just wanted a physical representation of the Lord that they could see and bow down before. They said of the calf, These are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And they made it a festival to the Lord. Their intention here was to use this image to make the worship of God more real and tangible. And if I am not mistaken, the same thing happens today, brothers and sisters. When we go to church, we want the worship of the Lord to be an authentic experience. Sometimes going to church just seems like this tedious ritual that we go through that doesn't really change us or touch us in a deep way. Instead, we want it to be a meaningful experience so that we feel invigorated and full of life and joy. How do you accomplish that? What can we do to make sure that our worship of the Lord is in fact something that is rich and meaningful? In our time as well, there are many people who give different answers to that question. One way some try to make the worship of God more authentic is to try to get more people involved in the worship service. It sometimes happens that the children of the congregation are called to the front to sing or to listen to a Bible story so that they can feel so that they can feel that they too have an important role in worshiping the Lord. Or conversely, they are asked to leave the worship service and have their own time of worship in which they hear a story which is deemed more age-appropriate. It has also become common in some churches to include other members of the congregation in a worship service. A student who is doing public profession of faith is asked to lead the congregation in prayer, or a school teacher is asked to begin the sermon by giving an illustration of some point. Or another way of trying to involve people is by having a member of the congregation come to the front at some point of the service and tell others about their experiences and what the Lord has done for them. Or another way of trying to involve people is to have a band instead of just an organ lead the congregation in singing. Or another way of trying to make the service more meaningful to people is for the minister to try and spice up the sermon Uh, make it more real by telling more personal stories in the sermon. You should understand these are not suggestions which I am just dreaming up. Each of these things have recently happened in Reformed churches with which we have fellowship. But is this really what makes the service of God authentic? Should we include each of these things in our worship so that we can become more heartfelt in our worship of God? We will consider these questions under the theme for this sermon. The Lord teaches us that our worship of him will be authentic and deeply meaningful if we follow his prescriptions. We will see, firstly, what is involved in authentic worship, and secondly, how we engage in authentic worship. First, then, what is involved in authentic worship? So what is involved in authentic worship? It is, a matter of, is it a matter of including more people in the proceedings? Do we need to hear the stories of what God has done in the lives of his people? Do we need special programs for certain segments of the congregation? If you go back to the book of Moses, then you can read about what God required in the worship of his name from the Israelites. 
And when you read through especially the second half of the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus, then you can see that God gave very detailed instructions about how the people were to worship him. The whole manner of temple worship was laid out in detail. Not only were the people told exactly how they were to make everything that was used in the service of the Lord, God also spelled out what was, who was to make the sacrifices, under what conditions, how exactly the festivals were to be celebrated, and how the teaching was to be done. Everything about the worship of God's name was spelled out, and many times it was a very formal process so that God's holiness might be maintained. Now when you read these passages over, it might seem to you that this would lead to a very ritualized worship of God, which lacked authenticity. And certainly it is true that when you read Israel's later history, the Lord often bemoaned the fact that the people went through the rituals without their heart being in it. For example, in a passage like Isaiah 1, he tells the Israelites that their sacrifices and festivals were meaningless and detestable to him. Or again, Jeremiah 7, he expresses his displeasure with their sacrifices and offerings since their hearts were not involved. It is possible for people to go through the prescribed ritual without genuinely worshipping the Lord. The same happens today. There are some who come to church faithfully, but when it really comes down to it, they don't do so out of a love for God, but more to keep up appearances. Such worship is not acceptable. But that doesn't mean that the problem lies in the prescriptions God has given. Just because some do not worship God from the heart doesn't mean that the means God has given us to worship him is in some way faulty. On the contrary, the Bible repeatedly shows us how people have followed God's prescriptions in order to worship him in a deeply meaningful and authentic way. Exodus 15, we are told that after the people, after the Lord saved the Israelites from the formidable army of Pharaoh, then Moses and all Israel worshipped God in song. And we're told that Miriam and the women also danced and sang songs, praising the Lord for the richness of his grace towards them. When you read through what they sang, you see that these people were singing and dancing from their hearts. They praised the Lord for his majestic holiness, awesome power, and wonderful works. God's power was so great that the Egyptians were shattered and consumed, and the other enemies of Israel were terrified and seized with trembling. The people of God are filled with delight and wonder at the work of God for them, and they rejoice to worship him. Take another example. Numbers 36, where God commanded the people to bring gold, silver, and other articles in order, in order to make the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. We are told that the people brought more than enough for the craftsmen to build all that the Lord had commanded them to bring. They brought so much, in fact, that Moses had to issue an order forbidding them from bringing any more. That sounds like authentic worship, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? These people are so filled with awe for the Lord and gratitude to him that they bring more than can be used. Think of the joy that David and the Israelites had when they brought the ark of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom up to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6:14 tells us that David danced before the Lord with all his might, and he and the people offered sacrificed burnt and fellowship offerings. Or if you want to use one of the festivals as an example. In 2 Chronicles 30, we are told of a time when the Israelites celebrated the Passover in the days of Hezekiah. Now prior to this, they had not been faithful to the Lord, 
So Hezekiah sent out letters to the people, calling them to Jerusalem for the Passover, as God had commanded them. Some of the Israelites ridiculed the king's messengers, but many others humbled themselves and responded to the king's call. We are told that a very large crowd came to Jerusalem, and they removed the altars to the false gods and cleared away the incense altars. The priests were ashamed of their neglect, and they consecrated themselves for the feast. Even though some who participated were not consecrated, Hezekiah prayed to God for them, and the Lord healed them. And then it is very striking to note how the celebration is characterized. We're told in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 21, that they celebrated for seven days with great rejoicing. And then in verse 23, we're told that after those seven days, they celebrated joyfully for another seven days. And then God drives home the Spirit present at this time in verse 25 when he says that the entire assembly rejoiced. And again, verse 26, it says there was great joy in Jerusalem. The point is that when these people worshipped the Lord in the way he prescribed, it was not a dull, boring, meaningless ritual. It was a wonderful time, rich with meaning and significance. Or if I can use yet another example from the New Testament. We are told in Acts 2 about what happened at Pentecost. And then later in that chapter it says that the people were cut to the heart, accepted Peter's message and were baptized. We are told they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and wonder. They shared what they had with those in need. They met every day at the temple courts. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Later in Acts, we are told numerous stories about how the people of God continued to worship God faithfully, despite being hated and attacked by many others. When you read these accounts, brothers and sisters, then you see how the worship of the Lord was not boring or an empty experience for many of God's people. They didn't just treat it as a ritualistic ceremony, devoid of any meaning that you just had to endure every Sabbath or every feast day. On the contrary, the worship of God was genuinely thrilling for these people. They loved coming into God's presence, and it gave them great joy to follow the prescriptions he had laid down for them. Worshiping God in the manner that he prescribed was a deeply authentic and meaningful experience. These people didn't have to contrive new methods in order to make the experience of worshiping the Lord something genuine and meaningful. On the contrary, what often happened on these occasions is that they focused their attention on the Lord, who he is, and what he had done. Many times they were turning away from what had been contrived in the past to a genuine worship of God. If you want worship to be a dull and meaningless affair, then all you need to do is make up your own ways to worship God instead of following what he has set down in his word. Initially, it may seem exciting, but over time it will become a ritualistic affair, which is rather tedious. When we read in the Bible about how people went wrong in worshiping God, you never read that the people were filled with joy or that it led to blessing. On the contrary, in Exodus 34, when the Israelites used a calf to worship God, it ended in total disaster. When Micah sets up a shrine with these idols of silver and hires his own priest in Judges 17, it leads to no end of grief. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, decides to set up these golden calves in Dan and Bethel, instead of letting the Israelites go to Jerusalem as God commanded, 
There are countless generations that suffer immensely from that sin, and their worship becomes a dull and boring affair. It's false worship that leads to worship. Sorry, it's false worship that leads to worship becoming meaningless, a meaningless ritual, brothers and sisters. In contrast, it is when God's people return to his command and follow his prescriptions that worship once again becomes deeply meaningful. Secondly, how do we engage in authentic worship? What does it take for us to genuinely worship our God? What is involved in authentic worship for us today, brothers and sisters? If you go to John 4, verse 24, there the Lord Jesus Christ spells out what is important for us today in the worship of God. In this passage, he is responding to the question of a Samaritan woman. When this woman understands that Jesus was some great prophet, then she asks him a burning question that was on her mind and the minds of many other Samaritans. Is it really necessary to worship the Lord in Jerusalem as the Jews claim? Or could they worship him in Samaria? To which Christ responded, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. True worshippers will worship God in spirit and in truth. Christ shows here that the essence of worship is not the outward signs, but begins in the heart. Those who are true worshipers are those for whom the worship of God is a spiritual matter, which is based on the truth. If you go back again to the Old Testament, then you see in many ways that this is not a new revelation. While it is true that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the sacrificial and ceremonial worship of the Old Testament, God has always demanded that his people worship him from the heart. This is clearly spelled out in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, where it says, or God says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good? The first thing that God wants is that we fear him which means that we hold him in awe and respect. When we worship God, we don't treat him lightly. We don't, just, we don't adjust his prescriptions for worship according to what we think is best. Instead, we always do what he commands. Scripture shows us that God punished very greatly those who treated him lightly. When Nadab and Abihu offered unholy fire in Leviticus 10, they were destroyed by the Lord, when Eli's sons treated God's sacrifices as their personal sumptuous feasts in 1 Samuel 2, then God put them to death. Those who make images or worship him in their own manner treat God lightly. They will not, the Lord will not stand for such sin, brothers and sisters. If you keep reading in Deuteronomy 10, you see that God also requires that we love him and walk in his ways with all our heart and soul. If our worship is motivated by a sincere love for the Lord, then it will be an authentic experience. Many times when the Israelites started worshiping God in their own way, 
and so sinned against the second commandment, the ultimate reason for it was because they had lost their love for the Lord. They were going through the motions without their heart being involved. And since they didn't really love the Lord, they weren't too concerned about worshiping him in the way he prescribed. Instead, they conjured up new ways of worshiping him which suited them better. When God reprimands the Israelites in Micah 6 for their meaningless sacrifices and offerings, he tells them instead what he requires first and foremost. He says in Micah 6, verse 8, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Our Father wants his worship to be rooted in justice, mercy, and humility. This is also what stands at the root of authentic worship today, brothers and sisters. For worship to really be meaningful, we need to realize that we come into the presence of the Almighty God. We must reflect on the fact that we may come into the presence of the God who is awesome in power and majestic in holiness. If you reflect on the worship that Moses and the people of Israel brought after they were saved from Pharaoh's army, it was deeply meaningful, precisely because they had their eyes clearly fixed on the Lord, and they stood in absolute amazement at his great love and the awesome power which he used for them. When the people celebrated the Passover in the days of Hezekiah, it was a time of great celebration and rejoicing, simply because they understood what a great God the Lord was, and what a great thing it was to put their hope and trust in him. When the church at Pentecost worshipped God with joy and gladness and experienced intimate fellowship with each other, it is because they understood from the apostles' preaching what a great gift God had given them in Jesus Christ, and they were overcome with happiness with what God had done for them. Every time authentic worship is based on fixing your eyes firmly on the Lord in faith, it is based on realizing the awesome power of our God, His grace towards you, and the riches of being His child. Do you want your worship to be truly authentic, brothers and sisters? The solution is not to invite more people to the front of the church, or to have the minister tell some interesting personal experiences he may have had. Genuine, refreshing, thrilling worship is based on firmly fixing your eyes on the Lord God and what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. It is when you understand who the Lord is and what he has done that you will love, fear, and honor him from the heart and take his commands to heart. Then the Sunday will become the highlight of your week because that is the day in which you may come into your Father's presence to commune with him. And the wonderful message of the gospel is that God doesn't leave you on your own to grow in love and fear for him. The Bible is clear that for Jesus' sake, he will lead us to sincere worship. In 2 Chronicles 30, verse 12, we are told that the reason the people worshipped God in the Passover is because he gave them unity of mind to carry out King Hezekiah's command. God led his people to respond in faith to the call to celebrate the Passover. In Jeremiah 32, verse 39, we're told that God is the one who gives his people singleness of heart and action so that we may always fear him. In Revelation 4, we have the account of John's vision of the church worshiping God on his throne, giving him all glory. But then it is pointed out to us that the church doesn't do so on its own. We're also told of the presence of the Spirit of God who leads the church to worship God. 
The Lord calls us to worship him in the way that he prescribes. But then he also promises that he himself will lead us to this worship by the means of his word and spirit. Let us then take the word of God to heart so that we may truly know the Lord as he is and then ask the Holy Spirit to work it out in our lives that we worship him in an honest and heartfelt way. And we can have good hope that he will accomplish this for us, brothers and sisters. The good news is that his ultimate intention in our lives is to lead us to worship him in a right way. We were made to worship God, and our Father will ensure that this reality is reached in the lives of his children. Amen. May we respond with the singing of hymn 4, stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Thank you. 